Welcome to the Mac PFD Spark Podcast. This podcast is meant to inspire you to take the next step in your development journey as a faculty member. We're really excited to bring you all sorts of content, from inspiring you to teach or supervise differently, to leading and managing your team, to thinking about new creative ways or humanistic ways to actually do your work, and finally, to up your game in your scholarly practice. Are you excited yet? I certainly am. So sit back, listen, and enjoy this latest episode of the Mac PFD Spark Podcast. In an effort to spice things up a little bit, we've brought in two different speakers from other centers to really spice things up on the podcast. The first is a conversation I'll have with Dr. Todd Chang. He is from the Keck School of Medicine, which is in Los Angeles at the University of Southern California. He also works at Children's Hospital of Los Angeles. He has been doing a lot of really cool work around serious games and sometimes gamification, but he definitely has been taking the space to really advance the notion of how games can really be used to up our practice and probably up the fun in some of the work that we do without losing any of the learning. Next, in the second segment, we have a conversation between Dr. Mohamed Zambari, who is one of our MACTFT team members, who interviews Dr. Jeremy Rezmovitz, who is someone that is an amazing family physician in Toronto, but he also works in bringing in improv into medicine, and he's been doing this for quite some time. He's also a fellow podcaster, so I think you're going to be in for a really great treat. All right. Hello. This is Tracy Chan again, and I'm here with one of my colleagues from the U.S. actually, who has been doing some really cool stuff. So this is Dr. Todd Chang, who is at USC. Maybe I'll just get him to introduce himself because he's probably better at it. And <laughs> Todd, do you want to say hello and let people know you're, where, where not you're from? Sure. Hello, everybody. I'm currently in Los Angeles talking through the magic of the internet. I work at Children's Hospital Los Angeles. That's where my clinical appointment is. And my university appointment is University of Southern California in Los Angeles. My clinical discipline is pediatric emergency medicine. So I went through the pediatrics route, which is all about development and nurturing and children growing up. So a lot of the educators that come from the pediatric side, even though I am technically in the emergency medicine, use that developmental framework and the milestones, and you may have heard of it in the U.S. as well. Todd, that's awesome. It sounds like you've always been one to have a child's perspective on things with your training. So that's awesome because I think there's something really cool about thinking through the mind of children and the creativity that comes with that. And to be honest, the big reason why I wanted to have a chat with you is that we have something in common, which is we're both kind of gamers, right? So, and we've both been so nerdy that we've also converted some of our gaming into scholarship and, and into teaching products. So I thought maybe could you tell us a little bit about your backstory on how you came into serious gaming, which is kind of what you do, and where you came from in terms of your journey as a scholar in that area. I graduated fellowship in 2010. Right around those times, about 2007, 2010, when I was in fellowship, I got very interested in medical education, really through the lens of technology and the technology with this kind of broad umbrella of technology. Right around then was when the iPhone got first invented. So I dabbled in e-learning, and that was my first foray into medical education technology. E-learning turned into simulation, and then simulation turned into back into video games and digital games. And then more recently, I kind of retro-evolved into board games and card games. But really, the heart and soul of it was that I was interested in technology, medical education delivery, and went through the whole process of simulation to get into games. Hey, that's pretty cool. My story is much shorter. I had finished my thesis and had wanted to think about how we could teach multi-patient environments. And one of my friends across this, the city from me went out for coffee and he said, what's next? And I said, you know, it'd be really cool if we could like have some kind of platform, like, you know, a board game or something. And then I just couldn't stop thinking about it. And then a couple of weeks later, I had met you at a conference. We'd been working on a paper together for some time and you kind of inspired me. So a big part of the reason why Gridlocked, the game exists and triage now as a, as a sister game to it 
exist is, is because I met you. So I thought oh. that you'd be a great person to, <laughs> awesome. to chat with, right? So you've been an inspiration and maybe you didn't even realize it, but you have been. So it's cool because uh, come full circle, Gridlocked inspired one of your colleagues in the Peas department, Peas ID guy, <laughs> Michael Cosimini, who yep. has gone on to make a card game about antibiotic stewardship, which is pretty awesome. It's definitely worth checking out. It's super cheap too, because I don't think he's making any profit at all. And, uh, <laughs> and he's just giving it out, but it's pretty cool too, right? So Mike's game is called Empiric, and it really is just a card game where you can like learn antibiotics and what antibiotics can be used to empirically treat different infectious disease problems within, in kids. And so it's pretty cool. To be honest, my partner is not in healthcare, but he played with me and my family over Christmas, and he can identify what should be generally treated with amoxicillin now, <laughs> amoxicillin <-clavulin> now. <laughs> so it's pretty cool. <laughs> Anyway, so you, that was your journey to get into games. And so you've been in and out of games. What is the coolest thing you've been up to lately? Can you tell us a little bit about something you're, you're kind of proud of that, uh, yeah. that you're working? Conceptually, the thing I'm most proud of is that my, my division head, my boss, actually finally understands the scholarly work of games. I think most of us, and perhaps you did this, when you first delve into games as scholarship, there's a little bit of salespersonship that you have to do in order to convince people that you're not just actually devolving into playing games and doing nothing else right and so i'm pretty happy that he sees the product he sees the scholarship finally and you know and people came from he did not come from a world where games were part of the training it was usually seen as something that children did and whenever you do something scholarly that resembles anything that your colleagues children are doing there's always doubts, right? This is the same thing with people who study social media, people who study like what other ch children's things, you know, I can't think of any other examples at the moment, but there's a yeah, sort well, of value. Some of the play, right? So people that do improv or some of the medical humanities, right? I think. Right, right, like medical, you know, yeah. yeah. The, yeah. the theater, arts, the performance or, of all that, yes. You know, or medical arts and music in its role. And I think that all of those things that we traditionally think that we, when you grow up as adults, we're supposed to put away childish things. And sometimes people think those are the childish things, but they're not because I think they're part of humanity. It wouldn't be so universal for everyone to be able to put, you know, the little, little grid down and immediately know how to play tic-tac-toe. That doesn't happen because it's by happenstance. That's because culturally games are such a powerful thing, right? I mean, who hasn't sat through a classroom been bored out of their mind and then you know, someone put, throws up a Jeopardy board on the screen and you're just excited to have some level of gaming, even that, like, it's not a high level of gaming, but like some teacher has gone to the trouble to like make quiz questions one time and give you buzzers. Like we all did that in grade school. We did that in high school. And I think increasingly we're seeing it enter into medical education now. Like, I think there's something nice about that, but yeah, you're right. There's an uphill climb with some of these things. And I am both studying social media and gaming. So I totally get it, right? because these are things that people equate with 14 year olds and not something that could be seriously used for academics and yet it, it can be right and I think you've gone a long way to convince people so yeah tell me about one of the things that you're proud of that you've you've been able to actually make so not just do because I think you've convinced your chair and that's I think a huge thing and kudos to you but what are some things that you've actually done in this space I think the most interesting thing from a scholarly point of view my moving forward in my mid-career as faculty is really showing what the best practices and outcomes and worst practices and outcomes. So it's just as important to know what to do and what not to do, both in the development and implementation of a game. So what I've learned so far is that as we make games, I think making games is actually not as hard as implementing it, particularly if you have a goal besides entertainment. Right? If you just want to entertain and keep your kid busy, then yeah, there are some good practices, but it's not it's not as complicated, but if you want to both entertain and teach, but in a small amount so that it's palatable and not have the entertainment overshadow the learning, because that also happens as well, there are some principles and concepts and even some theories of how to use gaming. And that's actually really interesting to me. Your question is about what I'm most proud of in the gaming and the scholarship of game development and game implementation. I think I'm most proud of some of our failures that actually went really far, but then just kind of petered out because it was designed only to do certain things and they tried to implement beyond that. We finally realized it and we scaled back to something more reasonable. One of the things that we developed in 2016 was a virtual reality simulation. 
So, and kudos goes to uh, Josh Sherman, who's now um, elsewhere in Los Angeles, but he was with us at Children's Hospital Los Angeles for a good, good two, three years. And he and I worked on a collaborative through Oculus from Facebook and two companies that I'll name here, AI Solve, they're based in London in England, and then Bioflight VR, they're based currently in Culver City and in Dayton, Ohio. All of us work together on a virtual reality simulation that really is a game with a point system and things like that for the purpose of stress inoculation. So we decided that we didn't necessarily want to teach the medical management. We wanted to teach medical management under the, the environment of stress, which we thought the modality of VR was superior at than say, Yes, you can have stress in a board game, but we wanted a different type of stress, the, the beeping and the, the notion that this is a life-threatening emergency. And in particular to pediatrics, there's parents involved. And for people who've done emergency medicine and are per- very good at the stress levels in there, adding a parent who is not having his or her best day of their life at all, right? that completely disrupts the environmental milieu and all of a sudden all of your medical knowledge and patient care is altered and we wanted to get on top of that possible breakdown and so that here's a stressful situation here's a child that may even resemble your own child at some point who is going through a medical crisis and you have to act so we purposely designed the development to be very light on the medical complexity it was like four or five steps and that's pretty much it but you had to perform it while things were going haywire and we had a lot of both fun and scholarly input on how to best balance the level of stress that it wasn't so overwhelming because we don't want it to be a horror game right because there's plenty of goals but enough stress that they weren't just sitting there like yes yes whatever click 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 done and so it was a really interesting fine balance to find it and i think we during the evaluation process we didn't find the stress levels to be what we thought it was going to be but in that evaluation we found a brand new audience that we did not think it was initially appropriate for that now is working really well essentially we found out that it was not as stressful as we thought it was going to be even though we had voice actors and lights flashing and things like that it was wonderful to work with the team but it still wasn't as stressful as perhaps like watching the avengers movies or whatever i suppose and it's definitely not as stressful as the real event which we initially aimed to match the real event but what we realized internally was that okay if it doesn't match the real event then maybe it's a safer alternative than the real event and we would aim this game towards novices who are not quite ready and would totally go too pale and overwhelmed at the real event. Let's use this instead of residents to like the interns and the, the novices because it be, provides them a stressful but much lower level of stress than the real thing. And so since then, we've implemented this for our interns yeah. and had a fairly good amount of success. The implementation looks different. We have to teach a little bit more prior to it, explain what, you know, the different medications and perhaps the dosing and the order. Yeah, you prime them a little bit. Yeah, you have to prime them with some scaffolding in the medical knowledge arena, which they lack compared to our more advanced residents, which we initially aimed for. But now that we changed the implementation, the game seems to work. And we have pretty good feedback about it as well. So that's one of the things that we, we failed to create the game we thought we were, but we still had a success and we pivoted. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's a really good like lesson in scholarly resilience, right? Like just like anyone whose experiment didn't work out the first time, but maybe it comes to mind how penicillin was discovered, right? Like you, you left a petri dish on the windowsill and you're like, oh, what's that? Sometimes you discover things that you didn't tend to discover and sometimes those are really cool things. So that's a really good kind of story to highlight that. And I mean, I think it also goes to, to show you that in education and game design, it's no different from any of the other processes we do. You got to test, you got to evaluate, and you got to like actually do some thought to see and measure, or at least understand how something deploys after you'd made it. Because people are good at breaking things, right? People are good at exceeding <laughs> expectations. People are good at, there's a reason why, you know, for iPhones, they have experiments, but they actually just drop them down like a flight of stairs because 
that's how we find out if it's going to be durable enough. And there's a reason why we have crash test dummies for, you know, safety in cars, right? Like there's industries full of people who intentionally try to break stuff. And I think that that's something that I for sure know that in our own game design, like our prototyping is pretty hard, right? We order one copy or we make one tester copy and then we, we do a lot of the plan, do, study, act, CQI kind of stuff until until something's ready, especially with game design. It can be fun. It's a little bit weird, though, sometimes trying to change the rules and you're like, which rule version are we on? <laughs> but that's pretty par for the course when you're designing games. You, you do want to make them better, right? Right. I actually think people underestimate the level of testing that's required and evaluation. And sometimes if you're if you're working with a pure entertainment company, they understand it on a conceptual level, like, beta testing, alpha testing, like it's ingrained in what they do. But oftentimes, particularly with healthcare education games, your funding is a little bit lower. There may be a deliverable that's sooner than you would like, whereas you can. And with an entertainment game, you could delay it and delay it as you can, you know, as long as your funding is still there. As a result, you might have a game that you intended and it's just not performing as you would because you now have two goals of entertainment and education, which you don't have to have with entertainment games. That balance is really tricky. One of the examples that I've given in like lectures or people who are into games and socialization particularly is this concept of con competition. And we found it to be a double-edged sword. It's not, everyone thinks of competition and I think everyone will say something about, oh, I'm so competitive at insert trivial thing like Monopoly or card games or tic-tac-toe. But in reality, the manifestation of competition doesn't always come about. They'll, make, they'll say things like, oh, I'm a surgeon, I'm really competitive, or I'm X, Y, and Z, I'm really competitive, but it's, it doesn't always manifest, and sometimes it turns people off. And finding that love, that, that balance can be really tricky. So as an example, the Ice Bucket Challenge, do you remember that? One of the best successes is that it raised so much money. One of the worst things that it did was that the entertainment value in the competition overrode the the actual purpose so that people no longer remembered why the ice bucket challenge was being done right ALS, right yeah. the game itself the entertainment can override the education or the competition can just turn something that should be noble into something more crass and mundane that's like the challenge with serious games in healthcare is because healthcare is a team sport where we're fighting against disease and if you try to gamify it too much and turn it into a competitive sport, that's that's not really the, the way that we want to emulate, right? So your game has to fit with the culture that it's trying to emulate. I think that's why healthcare games like that are even mass marketed. It's like, I mean, this is in the wake of the pandemic. So like there's the game pandemic, <laughs> which is a little too close to home right now for us to play. But it's a collaborative game where you're playing against the board and playing against fate of the die roll and, and there's a clock that ticks and you're trying to solve the problem as a team. And to be honest, that's the inspiration for the mechanic behind Gridlock is that we were like, well, it's an ED and we're very collaborative in ED. For us to have a competitive game makes no sense. So we need to play against fate. We need to play against the board because that's literally what in the emergency department we are doing literally right. <laughs> we're sitting there waiting for a disease to come in right so i think that you have to align your game to the culture that you want to emulate or that you want to kind of simulate in some ways right yeah and i'm sure Teresa, you've got run into this as well where because a game has to align with the culture or at least the culture of the topic the culture that surrounds the context of the topic that you're trying to gamify on a, more than one occasion i've had people recommend gamification when i thought it was not appropriate Agreed. It's always hard to articulate why. There's this concept of you cheapen the topic. There's also, I worry sometimes that people put so much faith in gamification as this like panacea for all things that people will magically do what it is that they see in their children with Pokemon Go in all of their colleagues magically like this. Uh -huh. And I, al I always feel bad because you know it's our career to scale back what we recommend or to say that I don't think gamification works on here. It's just your motivation is too to externalize now. You're just trying to get points for no good reason yeah. and you now have lost the whole content piece. And sometimes yeah. when I see bad games or get bad gamification where it's like, okay, let's have points. Why? You yeah. know? Yeah. And that justification and seeking that justification is intellectually very interesting, but oftentimes I bite myself and when I tell people, I think games are a bad idea here, and they just kind of look at me like, no, but you're the games guy. <laughs> Why would you say fun. that? <laughs> like, 
I guess it would be similar to like, you know, when some of my orthopedic surgery colleagues say, no, actually, I don't think we should operate on this hip because I think with rehab and stuff like that, and, and, it, and it takes a true expert to know when not to pull the trigger, right? Because I think it's sometimes easier. I mean, obviously, if it's broken, like if it's something that's super boring, super memory driven, then you know what, like Mike's game, it's actually a really good mechanism for people to just over and over quiz themselves, quiz themselves. And really, you're just building point system around the quizzing and the matching. Things like that are really good. And so they're low risk. But if you're looking at more complex games, where there's a storyline and storyboard, it would make sense for, you know, in pandemic for the players to to play against each other and try to steal resources from each other, because that would be hopefully not how we want a pandemic to run. And yet that is maybe how <laughs> sometimes in real world it is. So maybe there's a different version of, of that game that kind of helps us better simulate the economic impact and how that all kind of simulates, right? So I think that we do want to think about the ideal state of what it is. I think a good good craftsman will know what tool to use and, and games are a tool or gamification is a tool to pull out when the, when the situation fits. And I think that that's, it's, it's within a bigger bucket of simulation. It's in a bigger bucket of education writ large, right? right? You don't want to gamify everything because it's annoying if you do. And then you don't want to make leaderboards everywhere because that's also just hyper competitive and people just give up if they're not going to be in the top 10%, right? So you actually disenfranchise yeah. more people than you, than you incentivize. And I think that you just have to know that it's one of the toolbox items that you have as, a, as an educator or a teacher. And so you can't always just lock your students in a room, especially right now during COVID. Like you can't just lock them in a room and just make an escape room and uh, assume that they're going to bond. That, that, that might not happen. It could go horribly wrong too. So you have to also understand the limitations of the tools that you're, you're setting forth because that could make a big difference. And I think that a great educator or a great gamer knows when not to do something as much as... It's kind of like that show, What Not to Wear. Sometimes two colors, <laughs> they, just, they just don't go together. And it takes some time for you to learn that. And, right. and sometimes it's very obvious that, uh, uh, that, that you shouldn't. That's my analogy. <laughs> <laughs> it's very apt. A good game can never save bad education. Yeah, that's a good, that's a great one line. That should be the the title of this podcast episode. But the educational intent and the content, like if it's a bad delivery, if you're trying to get people to memorize something that's actually very conceptual, for instance, right? But they have to wrestle with it. There's no true answer. Like sometimes, you know, like it's the same thing with assessment, right? You probably shouldn't have an MCQ for something that's very nuanced. Like having an MCQ question about communication makes no sense, right? right? An OSCE station makes more sense, right? And so it's that alignment that's really important. There's a game theorist, I forgot this person's name, who talks about the two functions of games and serious games, which is mediating and moderating. One of which is it has nothing to do with the content, but you're using game strategies and game mechanics or gamification to motivate people to do the normal educational items. So points leaderboards, if you read this book and take the quiz or do this homework or whatever. And then there's the mediating side, and now I'm forgetting which is which. So read your, read your work guys, where playing the game is the learning activity itself. And that of course requires a more richer game and certain types of topics and cognitive topics that's more germane to what the game is all about. And sometimes you can do both, but usually you're focusing on one or the other, right? So you're using gamification tactics on an educational topic that otherwise should be strong on its own, but you're making it better. Or the process of the game, following the rules, discovering the rules is literally the, the, the model that we want you to follow in normal patient care. Right? Yeah. And I think those are two very different games. So like your gridlocked, for example, is would be on this side where playing the game is the learning goal itself mm -hmm. or leads to the learning goal itself. Exactly. The journey of the game gives you what you need. I mean, what's, what's cool is that we've actually played it with like high schools, even though the game says it's for 18 plus because I wanted mainly medical people to buy it. But we've done some workshops to introduce like it with their teachers there and everything like that. So we could debrief it with like high schoolers and by turn four of a sample game, if I recorded the audio and played it for you, you probably wouldn't be able to tell if it was residents playing or high schoolers mm -hmm. playing. So clearly there's something that you can do to make the game journey be part of the learning experience. They were using closed loop communication. They were doing all these things that with some small nudges and teach them how to do it. They got a couple of turns to be able to practice all that skill. And I think that to me is the, 
the reward of creating a, a game that really works to teach a point. But then like Mike's game, Empiric, where you truly are just trying to rope member something and just, the gaming is just to keep you the coming back to the cards. But you could use the you could basically use the cards like a matching game by yourself, like solitaire to just master master the game as well. The points don't really matter because it's just about how you how you racking up the, the, the game time experience to memorize things. That totally reminds me of something, but there's this theory of gamified learning. His name is Richard Landers, who talks about mediating and moderating through games. So they're not necessarily mutually exclusive, but they're, you usually have a focus on one or the other. So these behaviors and attitudes in turn influence learning by one of two processes, by strengthening the relationship between instructional design quality and outcomes, a moderating process, or by influencing learning directly, a mediating process. Great. So moderating means that it provides further motivation so that you have a strong educational instructional design, but you want to promote it, make it faster, make it more effective. And so you add a gamification or game strategy, game mechanics, whatever, points, leaderboards, to make it so that people do the instructional design more and more often, therefore they're better off. Okay, so that would be an example like Harry Potter where they have house points and the idea would be you wanted to, you already you you want them to learn good behaviors and be a good citizen and so you'll layer on top of that a motivating factor such as points and so and you put them in teams so they all compete to get more points but really at the core of it what you're doing is trying to train professionalism and collegiality and good behaviors and citizenship right and so i think an example of that would also be there's a game that you can you can play with your household where you actually all have the app and you get points for doing chores. And so like you could actually play against each other. And like, you know, I think Jane McGonagall describes this game in her book where she talks about how her husband will wake up at 6 a.m. to go do the dishes so that she could score points. Like that would be an example of layering that on on top, right? So those would be things like compliance issues with, you know, like you have to do your PPE training, which we all know that we have to do now, obviously, in the wake of the pandemic. But at the same time, maybe you would say which unit can get all their PPE done or which unit gets all their flu shots, you know, like it's a similar kind of concept, right? Right. Mm -hmm. And then so the other one is mo moderating. Mediating. Right? Well, mediating. Yeah, I, I get them mixed up too. So yeah. <laughs> I'm, I hope I'm saying this right. A mediating process is when you're truly influencing learning directly. The, the game, the gamification, the game mechanics are the actual learning points so that most likely whatever you're doing in the game, discovering the rules, doing certain things, moving certain objects is very applicable to whatever we're supposed to be doing in healthcare anyway, um, whether at the patient level or like a system level. Yeah, so that would so, be more your complex games, like the ones you're talking about, the immersive yeah. games, the games where you're trying to pick between multiple patients who are sick, maybe triaging different patients or learning some rules of conduct that you need to do for a certain skill set or diagnosis or where the discovery of the things actually leads you to, uh, I, you could think loosely simulation is sort of like that. It's not really a game because simulation is meant to actually simulate real life, but you know, like you could imagine that's part of why we do sim is to, to do that part, kind of teaching in, in, a, in a safe environment. Well, what's interesting about that statement is healthcare simulation and gaming is very linked together because the, you know, Jane McGonigal's definition of games is pretty generic, but pretty, I think it's pretty spot on. I like using it a lot. So it's, you must have a win condition or a goal of some sort. You need rules and a way, a way to get to that goal you need a feedback system to know how well you're doing towards that goal. And then this fourth one, which I struggle with, which we can talk about in a little bit, is it cannot be mandatory. It has to be voluntary, which that's a whole other thing. But those are really generic ideas. And if you're in healthcare, the goal is almost always fixed to some patient improvement or some patient outcome, whether it's like, Make sure that the patient learns something when you're doing a communication game or a patient has to return to spontaneous circulation if you're doing a CPR simulation, right? So in healthcare simulation, two of the three parts of the definition of the game are automatically met because we're always moving towards health. And it's really the manner in which the simulation is conducted that really like puts you into the stronger into the games category or if it's just regular old healthcare education. 
So I think that's why we have a lot of opportunities to mix the gaming world and the healthcare simulation world. I think that a big part of it is that I think the simulation experts were also some of the ones to see the natural links because of that, because of that default. Because we do always have a win condition, which is we want to improve healthcare. That it wasn't hard; it wasn't a far cry for us to to think about how we might might do that. So yeah, yeah. The other thing I wanted to talk about for yeah. Jane, the, that four definitions is the of the four definitions. Um, I think they're domains or principles Cri- or elements or whatever. Maybe. Yeah. Winning or having one person win or a team win is not one of those four. So yeah. like Tetris. Yes, that's the classic. Yeah. Right. Nobody can win Tetris, but yeah. it still has a goal, which is different than winning. And therefore, I'm going to go back to my old TV days. When I watched Saturday morning cartoons back in the day, mm-hmm. there are always these little games like Game of Life and Sorry. And at the end of the commercial, there's always a kid who raises their arms and goes, I win, right? Like always. And for some reason, that's like this mantra in that gaming game advertisement world that doesn't really apply to like video games, of course, but the fascination of winning or having a winner mm-hmm. is not necessary for a game to be successful. And I always found that topic to be really, or aphorism to be very fascinating. And sometimes I struggle with it when I'm explaining a game that there's really no end to it. You just kind of do this and do that and keep doing and blah, blah, blah. And, and then somebody will ask as a physician, well, how do you win? <laughs> I have an answer. You don't win. There are no winners in this circle. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that that's just something that with the experience of the games that we've actually played, there's usually a win condition, but sometimes it's just not losing or delaying losing as Tetris is, which is right. probably more akin to life, right? Like, I mean, I think I, I've, uh, someone asked me one time when we were talking about games, what's my favorite game? And I said, Tetris. And it's, and then I made the analogy that no wonder I picked emergency medicine as my specialty, because you can imagine that a lot of what I do from day to day is kind of like a patient version of Tetris. They keep coming in faster and, right. and more often. <laughs> And uh, and your job is to fit more of them in, and and there's a there's a bit of an analogy to that, you know. It's really interesting to think about how how games kind of motivate, right? Because I think that that's the other key is that that's what this does is that allows us to really think about how to how to motivate people because sometimes it's not about winning, but rather it's the journey, it's it's the story, right. it's the challenge, right? Uh, te- people that play Tetris play it because it's challenging. And you want to get closer and closer. That, that being said, I, I did have an app version of Tetris that did um, reach a level and I passed it and, and it was done. They, gave, they were like, you're done. I'm like, no, but I'm not done. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, anyway, I mean, so. Yes. So there, you can have a win condition, but nobody has to win for the game to be successful, particularly yeah. if the journey itself, if it's the mediating kind where you're yeah. actually mediating, learning through the journey, then it doesn't matter if you never end. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Um, it's always nice to nerd out with someone that has similar interests. So I really enjoyed having the conversation. Hopefully our listeners learn something or think about gaming in a, in a more rigorous, serious way, which is, which is kind of cool, I think, in my nerdy life. I do also think that it's probably a tool in our toolbox that if we take it seriously, we can deploy it either as a leader or a teacher or sometimes even as a scholar, right? Because you, you can imagine as a researcher, maybe we do need to steal some gamification mechanics to get people to fill out the forms <laughs> to incentivize participation, right? There's, there's some playfulness that maybe for all those who are clinical researchers to think about how they might use some of these techniques to spruce up the, the way they, they do business might be a cool way to attack things. So. Thanks so much for spending time with me today. All right, everyone, May 25th, 2021. It's a Tuesday. You need to mark down this in your calendar now. It's a free conference and it's going to be our 14th annual day in faculty development. It's going to be titled Academia Disrupted, Innovations and Dilemmas Prompted by the COVID-19 Pandemic. And I'm so excited to co-host this event with Dr. Ruth Chen. She is an inspired leader herself, and she's definitely been right here with us as part of our advisory council, advising us on how to navigate this difficult pandemic world. And so she is 100% correct. This is the topic we had to cover, and we're really excited to have some amazing speakers, workshops, and just cool ideas being presented about what we've all been going through in the past year. 
So I know it sometimes feels like this pandemic has never ended and is never going to end, but I think that we've really risen to the occasion to respond in the way that we have as faculty and we should celebrate those successes. So join us on this day. It's going to be a virtual conference, so it's open to everyone in the world as long as you can come to our time zone. Obviously, McMaster faculty will be prioritized if we have a waitlist, but we're hoping that all of you can join our conference and make it the best virtual conference ever. So check it out on our event calendar. We're really excited to be having this happen. Welcome everyone. My name is Mohamed Zuberi. I'm a developmental pediatrician working at McMaster University and hosting today's episode with our really interesting and exciting guest, Dr. Jeremy Resmovitz. Dr. Resmovitz is joining us from Toronto today, where he is practicing as a community family physician and as an assistant professor in the Department of Family and Community Medicine in Toronto. He's affiliated with Sunnybrook Health Sciences Center and the Humber River Hospital. He loves to have fun. He has four kids. And we're here today to have a really exciting conversation, particularly at the intersection of the arts and humanities with health professions education. This is a particularly important time for us to continually think about ways in which we can reflect about our practices, reflect about how we deliver health professions education, and to sort of think about what are practical ways to draw from other disciplines and bridge those ways into our day-to-day clinical practice and, and health education. So I'm super excited. I want to take this time, Dr. Resmovitz, to welcome you. Thank you for being with us this morning. Thanks for having me, Mohammed. Thank you. And is it okay if, as we move forward, if I uh, refer to you as Jeremy, is that okay? Yeah, definitely. Awesome. So thanks, Jeremy. And, and, and like I said, I'm, I'm really excited to have you because, you know, we've been constantly thinking about, you know, what are ways of, uh, you know, altering or perhaps thinking further and more deeply about the way in which we deliver education. And so you've had perhaps a little, perhaps a lot of experience with improv theater. And so for those of us that are new to that, can you tell us a bit what improv theater is and what sort of makes it so exciting as somebody who's had experience with it? Sure. Let's start with the uh, beginnings of the differences between improv and comedy. I think when we've done our workshops, most people are afraid. They bring a lot of fear towards hearing the words improv. They think they're going to be put on the spot. They think there's going to be a spotlight put on them and they're going to be expected to be funny. Mm -hmm. And so the differences between improv and comedy are the first things that you need to elicit when you're discussing this type of mechanism or or intervention. First of all, comedy is scripted. I don't know if you've uh, seen, um, there's a movie that's, that's out now it's called Borat. That's the subsequent movie film. And, and it's, it's scripted. I bet you in within the movie, there is improv going on. But for the most part, if it's not on the page, it's not on the stage. It, it is scripted. It's expected to get a laugh because they've tested it out. Whereas improv is collaborative storytelling without any prearrangement whatsoever. In fact, if you, if you really analyze medicine and the interview process that occurs between the provider and the patient, other than the first four sentences of, hi, nice to meet you. Hi, how can I help you today? Uh, Thank you. It's improv. You have no idea what someone's coming in with usually. Mm -hmm. Even if you know what they're coming in with, they may throw you a curveball. And so the first thing to understand with improv is that it's the essence of being present and responding it's not scripted. Mm-hmm. Now, as far as my experience, yeah, I have, I've dabbled in the, in the arts, as they say. I love getting on stage and, and performing. The differences between stand-up comedy and, and improv. In stand-up comedy, when you fail, you fail alone. But in, in improv, when you're with a troupe and you fail, you fail together. And really, that's the key about improv is the collaboration and working towards learning from what you're doing to improve See what I did there? I took improv and I added an E, improve, (laughs) okay? Health professional education. So Jeremy, there's so much in there to unpack. And one of the things that I've often wondered about is, 
you know, in medical school and residency, we're often taught to script the ways in which we take our histories from families. And so, you know, when you bring up collaborative storytelling, how does the ways in which we take histories and ask questions of families sort of change or, or how is it modified, perhaps, if we start to think about some of the principles of improv and its application to our training models? So I think that's a great question. I used to teach the undergraduate foundations course about history taking, and I used to tell people to make sure that they hit certain beats. At the end of the day, we have a job to do. And the important thing is to try to pull and elicit information from people so that we can use that information to assess their risk and figure out the pattern, assess them with uh, what we call a diagnosis, and then provide a management plan. But you can do that in a myriad of ways. I'm sure you've seen early medical students in a more robotic, very scripted, very rigid way of asking questions. And you've seen seasoned, experienced individuals asking questions in a more relaxed, organic, whatever that means, but I've seen both, organic fashion. Assuming that this stuff will come out and, and letting one thing lead to the next, right? But both are going to get the information. The question is, what was the experience of the patient and the provider, right? I mean, we want to look at the um, quadruple aim and looking at how can we improve the experience of, of both people that are engaged in there. And so improv, I'm not telling people to just go off script and go do whatever the hell they want. Improv is just a way to practice. Just like a tennis player does drills. They're going to work on footwork. They're going to work on a backhand. They're going to work on a forehand. They may work on some drills close to the net. They may work on baseline stuff. And individually, you can work on these drills, but then you're going to go play the game. They also play practice games. But the point is with improv and using it in health professions education, it's a way to learn how to be more comfortable with uncertainty. And I think as you progress through your training, I mean, the practice of medicine from an undergraduate to a postgrad, if you take on graduate or fellowship studies and then practice independently, I think the one thing that unites all providers is that we're more comfortable with uncertainty. I think improv can help with that. I think that is the role of improv is allowing people to be more comfortable with uncertainty. And I'd love to pick up on that in a second, but perhaps for our audience, can you walk us through, Jeremy, what a improv training session looks like? If we're new to this and we're coming into a session, what would we expect as trainees and as professionals? Maybe walk me through that. I'll walk you through that. I want to take two steps back first, though, and talk to you about the different types of improv that are available. So there's improv comedy. You can go and sign up at a local improv theater company. The pandemic has kind of thrust a wrench into the theater because most things are closed and we're not allowing people, but there are online Zoom improv programs that you can engage in. So there is improv comedy where the goal is to create comedy through spontaneous collaboration. There's another area called applied improv where you use the fundamentals of improv in different areas, workplace settings, home, they're applied. You're just using the tools of improv in a different setting. And the last area is, is why we're here today is called medical improv. Watson and Fu, in their paper in 2016, described medical improv as the application of improv to the medical field. What does that mean? What does a typical improv session do? Well, it's like anything. You're going to invite somebody in to play. You see, there's these underlining philosophies or theories that underpin improv and why it works in medicine or why it works in healthcare. You've got play theory by Brian, Brian Sutton Smith that says uh, play is invigorating and uh, enhances and refreshes well-being. I think you could argue that we probably need that in healthcare. We need a sense of, of working together. And I don't know if you remember playing in the sandbox, but it was fun. And you learn things about the person that you played with. Did you want to play with the person that threw sand at you over and over again? No, I don't want to have another play date with them. Oh, I want to have a play date with the person that is going to be generative and enjoy and align with what I like to do. It's play. There's also experiential learning theory by Cole that talks about the opportunity to test and retest ideas that immerses you in the learning itself. The uh, show me, don't tell me part of, of medicine. And then if you want, there's reflective practice theory by Schoen that says there's reflection in action 
and reflection on action. And so I tell you all of this because as I describe an improv training session that we do, what we do is we invite people into play and then we debrief. And so you get the immersion, you get the opportunity to experience it, you get the opportunity to reflect on it, and then you get the opportunity to think about how may this pertain to my workplace? Because not everybody comes from the same workplace sometimes. I think that's super exciting. And I think as somebody who clinically does a lot of work in pediatrics, I'm always thinking about play, but I've never actually heard that sort of brought up in the context of our opportunities in education. I think we become uh, perhaps very systematic and dogmatic about some of our approaches, which takes away from the opportunities to be creative and curious. So I'm wondering, you know, what have you seen with the participants that you've engaged with in terms of what comes out with their creativity and their curiosity, the ways that they're perhaps reflecting on what they're learning? So everybody brings a different position when they come to improv. Some are their natural extrovert comes out, others, their natural fear sets in. And so I think the most important thing that we have to remember when we're doing improv sessions is to set down some ground rules. And I think the ground rules allow for everybody to participate. They allow for the inclusivity to happen. I just want to touch on one point that, that you do a lot of work in play, and then I'm going to get onto the rules of improv. But just curious, have you ever heard Brian Sutton Smith? And this is the play theorist that I, I love. He says, the opposite of play is, what do you think the opposite of play is? I mean, the, the, the opposite of play would be the lack of imagination or creativity is, is how I would sort of phrase it. Okay. Most people answer the, la- the opposite of play is work. Because hmm. that from, cult- from a cultural standpoint, these are the values that have been projected onto us. Right. If you look at uh, Bourdieu, if you go read about social capital theory by uh, Pierre Bourdieu, they talk about all the things that we bring into a situation, our own values, our own cultural meanings. Brian Sutton Smith opened up the world for me when he said the opposite of play is depression. It is the lack of creativity and the lack of it, it is it's depression. And so when you bring people in, whether or not they are willing to play or whether or not they're not willing to play, by having the rules, we try to include everybody in these situations, in these, in these workshops. So for instance, first of all, the first rule is adult rules apply. If you don't want to play, you don't have to play. But we encourage play. The second thing is the three rules. And here are the three rules. Number one. You don't have to be clever, witty, funny, or smart. And that speaks to the fact that we are leveling the playing field. We're, it's not about one-upsmanship. It's about togetherness, right? You don't have to be clever, witty, funny, or smart. This isn't comedy. This is improv. You have to be present. The second rule is take care and support each other. I mean, duh, come on. Like, wouldn't you want that in every work environment? Take care and support each other. And how do you do that? By number three, by saying yes. And yes, isn't a affirmation that what you're saying is is true or valid. What yes is saying, I'm here to play with you and I will support you in whatever we are doing right now. And the fourth rule, oh, sorry about that. And the fourth rule, because there's three rules of comedy. So obviously there's four rules. The fourth rule is that there are no mistakes. There are only gifts. And so by going into a situation where I tell you, one, you can't fail. Two, you don't have to be clever, witty, funny, or smart. Three, people are going to support you. And four, all you have to do is be present and engage. Oh, come on. You got a winning situation there. And how is that winning situation perceived by the, I know you mentioned that everybody sort of comes at it with different experiences, but are there some, are there some common themes of reactions perhaps when people are first engaging with, with improv and if they're perhaps more seasoned? Have, have you noticed differences there? We have to take a step back, and I apologize to always do this to you, but the instructors, when you're doing a workshop, you, what you want to do is bring people in slowly. You don't want to put them up on stage the first time and say, go, because I think people's fears will get the most of them. So we start off most of our sessions with very gentle inclusion activities. The first one that I usually do is a walk and stop thing where I get everybody in the room to walk. And when I say walk, you walk. And when I say stop, you stop. That's it. 
we debrief that and say, how'd that go? And most people are like, fine. I mean, I'm walking and stopping. The point is to get people to understand and align with the fact that they are always improvising. Always. It's always happening. And so we build it in. So do people respond differently? Yeah. Some people giggle and be like, what are we doing? Like, this is an improv. Because what we're trying to do is break down the mold of what they've created of what improv is and be present in the workshop. And when you're present in this workshop and engaging with with simple things that we ask people to do, counting to 10, playing, working to create imaginary structures, just play, just to create stuff and embody things, people start to giggle. And, And it's funny to watch people giggle through the spectrum. And so what I tell people is this isn't comedy. I I've named my workshops now, this isn't comedy, but this is improv. You will definitely laugh, but this isn't comedy, like something like that. Because this is not comedy. This is improv. And when you're present, what happens is like this joy emanates out of you. And that's what we're going for. And so for some people, it takes a little bit more time. But by the end of it, most people are truly engaged. And I know you've done some work sort of thinking about how improv can be used to facilitate learning across the different CanMeds roles. And for yep. those that are, are, are listening, you know, the CanMeds are the, the competency frameworks laid out by the, the Royal College here in Canada. And so I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit to that work and sort of, you know, sort of reflect upon, are there particular CanMeds roles where it's, you know, more relevant versus others, or does it, you know, apply equally across all of them? So sure, we did a scoping review. We had a team of healthcare providers from family doctors, psychiatry residents, medical students, and a education scientist. So shout out to everybody on the team from Judith, Joyce, Rashida, and Lou, and myself. And we just had a a wonderful time. We did something called a meta-ethnography, which is what's used for qualitative studies, not the usual meta-analysis that's used in, in typical quantitative uh, objectivist studies and so or experimental design and so we looked at first the number of programs that were available that people have delivered improv in and we looked then at the responses of the participants in those programs and then we looked at the responses of the analysis of what the people that delivered the program and then we did our own analysis on top of that and mapped it to the CanMeds roles. And what we found, because we asked, the the question was, what is known about the role and the implementation of improvisational theater in health professional education? And look, there isn't a lot. There were seven papers that we identified at the time. More have come out since. But the point is, is that it mapped to six out of the seven CanMeds roles. And I don't think any CanMeds role is harder or better than any other one. I actually don't like the flower with the medical expert in the middle because we, we look at the medical expert as the, as the content. In colloquialism, we call the other skills the soft skills that people learn. But I think you need the soft skills as the hardest ones to develop, those, those listening skills, the working together with other people skills, the ability to lead, knowing when to lead and when to follow. That makes a great leader followership makes a great leader. Practicing how to follow will will generate time for you, will generate just important ways for you to lead because you'll know what you want to follow. So when we talk about the leader role and the collaborator role and the communicator role, we talk about the professional role, showing up. Oh my God, just showing up. We talk about the scholar role and reflecting. Improv does all of that. And so these soft skills that people are like, nah, it's okay, I, I, I'm a physician. Well, you're a physician, but it turns out that being able to convey your information is important. And eliciting information is important. And practicing that training, what do we do with, with medical expert? We train people. And so if we have all these learning outcomes that we want from the CanMeds roles, I think we really need to fundamentally reassess what we're doing and think about how can we do this in a fun immersive, regenerative way. Improv does that. And on that note, that's really interesting to hear. And I think fun and generative is such, there's there's so much in there. I'm wondering, Jeremy, if you've had thoughts about, you know, as we shift to CBME, um, competency-based medical education, and, you know, the Royal College's CBD, how 
could we reimagine that flower, for example? And then in terms of, you know, what do you see perhaps as the role of improv within a, a newer framework that's being rolled out nationally? I'm, I'm just curious to get your thoughts on that. I'm going to answer the second question first. What is the role of improv? It is important, I think, in this world of uncertainty. I think that if we start learning to train uncertainty and engaging people in this stuff, we will improve the comfort that we bring to uncertain situations. There's a lot else going on. I mean, you got to do CPR. You got to learn how to do ALS. You got to learn. I mean, there's just ACLS. Sorry. There's so much to learn. You got to learn all the antibiotics for every infectious disease that are out there. You got to figure out what's in a flu vaccine and respond. There's so much that we could go on. We could talk about how to assess a heart, a system. I, there is so much. And so where does the role of improv? Well, guess you, you know as well as I do, if you're interested in the arts and humanities, it has gone, keep going lower and lower and lower. It, it is not on people's priority. I mean, most of that though, you have to, if we're going to reimagine things, then let's start at the beginning and look at Abraham Flexner, who wrote the Flexner Report in 1910, who figured out, well, we should have medical schools attached to universities. And so how long is it going to take? It's a four-year program. What's changed? What's cha- it's a four-year program. So if you want to compete in the world right now, I mean, Mac has a three-year program, but they go through the summers. At the end of the day, if you want to compete with the global community for medicine, if you were to say, you know what, there's so much to learn, we're going to go slower and do five years or six years, and we are really going to prepare you for the world, I don't know who would matriculate there. And so that would be a huge risk. And I don't think universities are willing to play that risk right now. And so what role does improv? You know as well as I do that you probably improvise today. You probably improvise this morning at some point with this interview. You're going to improvise later in the day if you have a clinical situation. And yet we still resist improv as a way of, of, of learning. Why? Most probably because we're afraid of it. We're afraid what we might learn. There isn't enough evidence. It is not evidence-based. Well, yeah, it is if you agree to the underpinning theories that support it, which we do for everything else. That said, what is the role of improv in health professions education? It's important. I, I really think it would make better physicians. It would make better nurses. It would make better pharmacists. It would make better social workers. It would make everybody better in healthcare. To answer your first question, do you remember what your first question was? Yeah, I was um, asking about kind of as we roll out into competence by design by the Royal College, what role will improv or perhaps, you know, yes, improv is one strategy play within that space. Yeah, it won't. It won't, unfortunately. And that's why I wanted you to re-ask it for our our listeners, because I went off. That's why I answered the the second question first. It is important. But getting the people who create competency by design and create CBME to say, listen, we should have a module on improv isn't going to fly. The problem is, is that improv is a immersive living module. Like you have to continually do it to get better at it. And if you don't take that approach, then it's not a one and done. Like, you know, if it's competency by design and you're going to put improv in, do you know how many physicians might feel like they're still failing at improv? right? When are they going to reach competency? How can you say that someone's competent at improv? Now you can use it as a, as a mechanism to help teach some of this stuff, some of the can meds roles, but I still think we would never put enough in for people to truly benefit from it because I don't think people trust that it works. So I, I just want to pick up on a couple of things before we, we finish up in the time that we have together. Uh, one of the things that you've brought up repeatedly that I've been sort of paying some attention to now is this whole notion of uncertainty. And what I'm wondering, Jeremy, is that, you know, what are the opportunities right now? If we take improv away for a second, but what are the opportunities right now in our health professions education where we do become comfortable with uncertainty as we move trainees through medical school residency and practice? I think there's one thing that we have to do with for trainees and for colleagues that can help unify and create what everybody's looking for. Every, it seems to me that people are looking for the safe space. I don't know if you've heard the term safe space. And so I've talked about this on previous podcasts. I I don't agree with with naming a space as safe. 
I think as soon as you tell people this is a safe space, my antenna go up. What do you mean this is a safe space? How can you guarantee that? I'm looking for certainty here and you're telling me that this is a safe space? So I don't do that anymore. In fact, I don't think I ever did that. I, I had some um, gut, reflexive gut, uh, what's the word, contrast to it. Uh, I just didn't, I didn't, it didn't sit well with me. And so what we did is we created something called the brave space. The brave space is taking the safe space to the next level. So I, I'm going to tell you that I can't guarantee that you are going to be comfortable. And I can't guarantee that you're going to know everything. But what I can guarantee, and this is the one thing that we can do for our trainees and the one thing we can do for our colleagues, is that I will support you. I will continually support you. I just need help in identifying what support looks like for you. And so by supporting you unconditionally, what we'll do is create something called the brave space. And in the brave space, we can take risks. And by taking risks, you'll recognize and be aware of the fact that there is uncertainty but you're willing to take certain risks that will help you mature, that will help the patient and say, we're just gonna listen. We're, we're gonna try to elevate what we're doing with our patients and with our colleagues and with our trainees to a point where we're willing to take risks because we know that if we quote unquote fail, we'll be supported. And I think improv training can help people understand. I mean, it is the second rule, take care and support each other. And I, I think too often we don't support each other unconditionally and really help because who really wants other people to fail? What we want you to do is learn, especially for our trainees. And so some, I don't know if you've noticed, but some trainees, I mean, there's, there's a spectrum and some trainees are willing to take certain risks and other trainees are governed by fear. And that fear limits their ability to learn. What if we could create a space where I said, regardless what happens, I'll support you. And we'll make sure that you learn this by the end. Instead of, instead of putting people in, in positions where I'm going to evaluate you of whether or not you completed it or you, whether the task that you did was complete or incomplete, I'm going to guarantee you that you're going to get the complete, but that if you don't know something, you can ask for help, just like in medicine. What do you do when you, when you don't know something? Do you say, oh, you just sweat and you sit there until the answer comes to you? No, you look it up. You ask for help. Cheating, by definition of what we do in academia, is the complete antithesis to the way we work in the real world. Why don't we reimagine what training is to align with what the real world is, which is, you know what? You can ask for help. You can look stuff up. You can get a second opinion. I think that would go a long way to creating a space where everybody feels supported through their training and into their practice. I love that. I love the, the this this concept of reimagining and continuing to reimagine across all the different you know spaces and how we think about them. So so thank you for for sharing that. I want to bring up briefly in an interview that you did for UFT Med back in 2018. Um, one of the things that you you said in that interview, um, Jeremy, was that, and I quote, in an improv sketch, we play with the power dynamic. So how you do, how do you give more power to the patient? End quote. So I'm just wondering, can you speak to that a little bit and what that what form that takes in in improv? Yeah. So improv training will allow you to play with different different thoughts, different, it just, it, it raises an awareness. So if you look at critical consciousness in healthcare, um, you can look at the power structure. So, so generally speaking, the doctor has the power and the patient is at the uh, mercy of the doctor. But it turns out, if you've ever worked with any patients, the doctors are actually don't have the power. So even though you can, you have the power to prescribe, the patient actually gets to put something in their mouth if we're talking about oral medication. So the patient gets to show up. The patient has to do it. So if we can play games like that that demonstrate who has power and what power looks like. And so if you go through these things with, with people while they're engaged in these workshops, you can really elicit what power looks like for you or what strength looks like and, and what you really want. And so you can try to find ways to get people to move and get people to talk that will elicit these power structures that are inherent, this, this bias that we carry with us because they're the values. 
Maybe you grew up in a family that said, my father's going to sit in this seat and my mother sits in this seat. And so, and then you see that echoed through society, through movies, through TV, through reading, through different avenues, you see this stuff echo. And so improv training can actually break down some of those values that we we hold these belief systems that we have where somebody needs to sit in this, in one area. Or if you see a tall person walk in, you know, tall people have a, have a physical advantage because people have to generally look up to them. Well, looking up reminds us and triggers us of what it was like to be a child in that power dynamic where the taller person was the adult and the smaller person was the child. And so you may revert back into these things whenever you're looking up at somebody who's much taller than you because we actually give power to these people based on our cultural and societal values. Improv training can help break all that stuff down. Thank you so much. And that's that's so relevant to sort of broader conversations that are taking place around, you know, sort of systemic issues and and challenges that we need to continue to, to think about. Before we came on the recording, um, Jeremy, you said that uh, life is improv. And so as we finish up and you think about the rest of your day today, um, can you walk us through what are going to be those moments of improv that, that you know, you're going to be paying attention to or, or aware of? It's a bit of a cheeky question intentionally. <laughs> so I just it's wondering. Okay. So as we're sitting here, I already got a phone call from a patient. I mean, I didn't expect it. Uh, so I'm going to call her back and try to figure out what's going on with her today. I've got my kids that I have to pick up at school today. We've got karate class this afternoon. I, I don't know what's gonna happen. I mean, life is improv and I recognize it as such in that it gives me opportunity to play and play with different power structures. My kids come home and they'll tell me something that happened in school and then I'll challenge them on that, um, the notion or idea that they had. You know, here's a, here's a good example actually. This happened last week, my, my kid's tooth fell out and uh, he said well, the tooth fairy is gonna come and give him some money. And uh, I said, oh yeah, the, the tooth fairy definitely is real. And he said, no, the tooth fairy is mummy. And I said, I don't think so. And, and so there's this value that these kids have, this idea, this notion, this bias that the tooth fairy is mummy, okay, is their mom. Look, let's be honest, it is. But I challenged it and I said, well, do you know about the hairy fairy that comes in also? And they said, no, who's the hairy fairy? I said, yeah, so what if the fairy was a man and the fairy was hairy? And so the tooth fairy is generally, it, it, it could be anyone, male or female. And so challenging that notion that comes up is a way to play in improv and come up. We just came up with stuff, but this is my day-to-day -day life is challenging my kids' notions so that they're not struck down with this constant bias that leads to institutional racism and sexism, that leads to this ageism that happens in life. I don't want that for my kids. I want to promote thinking, critical consciousness, so that they understand how to apply this, you know, when they grow up a little bit older. I mean, granted, he's six. And so it, some may argue it's a little too early to start eliciting, you know, power dynamics, but, but maybe not. I don't know. We're improvising. Well, on that note, I, I want to thank you again for taking the time to speak to us today. I think you've given us a lot of material and, re and reflections to have our audience be challenged about perhaps the ways in which they think about, you know, many of these constructs. So once again, thanks so much for taking the time today. And we look forward to, you know, continuing this conversation at some point in the future. Thanks, Mohammed. I really appreciate having me on here and uh, good luck with the Faculty Development Podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Mac PFD Spark podcast. Just so you know, this podcast has been brought to you by the McMaster Faculty of Health Sciences and specifically the Office of Continuing Professional Development and the Program for Faculty Development. If you're interested in finding out more about what we can offer for faculty development, check out our website at www.macpfd.ca. That's www.macpfd.ca. Many of our events are actually web events that are free. Finally, I'd like to thank our sound engineer, Mr. Nick Hoskin, who has been an amazing asset to our team. Thanks so much, Nick, for all that you do. And also thank you to Scott Holmes for supplying us the music that you've been listening to. All right, so until next time, this is Mac PFD Spark signing off.